often we think about flexibility as, well, will it work because our employees won't all be here together? I think what we miss in that are all of the individual situations that you can just never really imagine are going on in people's lives. Today we're joined by Jonathan Parsons, VP of HR at Hitachi Rail. This is a fascinating conversation in which Jonathan shares insights into the study that he did around flexible working and the costs and opportunities associated with it. He also talks about why empowerment is so key to drive employee engagement, but critically how an individualised approach is the best way to achieve this. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us on the Happy Workplace Project. I know you and I go back quite a few years, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today, particularly because of the breadth of experience that you've developed over the period of your career, having worked across a multitude of organisations globally. So I wondered if you could maybe start by giving us some insight into your career journey and what it is that you're doing today. So my background is all in HR. My early career was in financial services and professional services and I suppose I had a bit of a light bulb moment that whilst I loved HR I was looking to work with a company where there was a far more tangible end product and so that was I think what drew me towards more industrial manufacturing type environments and so as you say I think that I've tried deliberately to work across a real variety of different industry sectors. I'm really curious and I love learning about different businesses make money and how different the dynamic of different industries. So I've worked across automotive industry, motorsport, motorcycle industry, and then of course more latterly in Hitachi Rail, who are the manufacturers, service and maintainers of the InterCity Express fleet in the UK. And what's the role that you're doing with Hitachi Rail? Uh, So I look after the employees across the UK, Scandinavia and and Central Europe. So I look after about 4,000 employees out of a total of around 12,000 employees in the whole organisation. Fantastic. How would you describe the culture at Hitachi Rail? Well, it's a very big company and it's part of an even bigger company. So it has that depth of resources and expertise. It's It's a very global feeling company. So the kind of main centres of gravity are Italy, the UK, Japan and the US. So it has a very global feel. It's very normal for us to interact with colleagues from all around the world every day. And I think in common with a lot of, I've worked for another Japanese national and they have a very calm, very long-term kind of culture, which I I really enjoy. On the spirit of calm, I was looking at your values recently, and one that really sprung out to me is called WA, which uh, which obviously means harmony in English. Could you tell us a bit about that? Because I'm super intrigued as to how that is something that's central to the organisation. A lot of Japanese companies are very much about consensus building and around, it's a phrase called nemawashi, but the process of decision making is quite different to other companies. So a Japanese company will tend to take a relatively longer time to make a decision, but they, and there's lots of pre-discussion and lots of analysis and stakeholder building and consensus building before a decision is made. But of course, that has the advantage that once a decision is made, everybody's aligned around it. 
And I think that perhaps is part of what's meant by harmony, but also just the very collegiate feel of the culture, very meritocratic culture where the, 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 the challenge in that actually is that ha- what harmony doesn't mean is that everybody has to just agree with each other all the time. There's still space for that healthy conflict, but, but essentially it plays to the Japanese trait of, of consensus building. So, Jonathan, as a business that provides solutions to society's challenges, I'm wondering if you could explain to us how this vision is made to live within the organisation on a daily basis. I touched on this earlier about how Japanese companies will take a very long-term view. And if you look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, then they're aligned around the major challenges to society. And, and what Hitachi has done through a, a set of a portfolio of businesses is to ensure that each business can align itself with one of those social development goals. And of course, for the division that rail is part of, that's part of mobility, making sure that people have access to mobility in, in a green environmental way. And of course, rail and the broader mobility section plays a huge part in that in society. And the the, the kind of end game is to build a company where you create a sort of digital seamless mobility solutions. So train is just one part of that, but perhaps you have the, the software and the digital assets behind that that can stitch together. If your journey to work involves taking a taxi, hiring a bike, getting on a train, getting off the other end, that you can digitally stitch all of that together. And that's really the future direction of the business. Fantastic. So I guess what I'm hearing so far is that there's a a real complexity to the organisation underpinned with a strong sense of purpose. I wondered, therefore, if you could tell us a bit about your leadership style. Yeah, sure. So I think if you ask the people that work for me, they tell you I'm pretty easy to work with. I think I would, a bit like the organisation, take a sort of long-term view of where we need to get to. And I try to live by example behaviours. So I tend to focus on behaving in the way that I would want the team to behave. I'm very into the idea of HR as a kind of customer service type function and being very much an enabling function rather than an HR department that says no and doesn't help. And I think that comes through perhaps my leadership style tend to be quite long term in terms of thinking and set longer term, a longer term vision for want of a better expression, rather than being a short term kind of task type manager. I think if you hire the right people and the chemistry is right, then you don't necessarily need to be into the detail with them. And I was listening to you recently on another podcast where you were talking about how you'd taken the opportunity during lockdown to start a piece of work around flexible working. Could you talk to us about that and what the findings were? Yeah, of course. So I was fortunate enough to be an apprentice. So I I was a level seven, NVQ level seven apprentice, and so did a master's degree through Ashridge. It was in leadership and management, but of course I was doing it at the same time as COVID was happening. And so of course the opportunity to research and write about hybrid working just kind of fell into my lap. So there was a lot of research from a long time ago, actually, we think of it as a new thing, but actually in the 60s and 70s, telecommuting was already a thing on the West Coast of America. 
but of course we particularly in the UK were all plunged some of us were plunged into this world where we were suddenly virtual working hybrid working almost overnight and so I did my thesis on taking an employee engagement model and looking at which factors were enhanced, which were decreased and which stayed the same. And essentially it was some surprises, but I guess the the biggest surprise for me probably was if, if there were these 10 factors of employee engagement, that most of them were unaffected. And the real ones that people found increased were their level of control over their own work. And of course they lost, but, but, but conversely, the big thing that they lost was this kind of connectivity with their employees. And a lot of people talk, have talked about this, about how you don't have those water cooler moments and there isn't the same level of collaboration. So it, it was really interesting in the findings, but I think for me, the most interesting thing about it all was the opportunity to talk to employees on an individual level outside of my sort of HR world and just be able to talk to them about what it was like to work for us, which you, you often don't really get the opportunity for employees to share that very openly with you. And, and all these stories started to come out from just, just things that, that as a you know, fairly privileged white male I'd just never considered before. So I talked to people who'd missed every sports day, missed every parents' evening to spend most of their weekends doing domestic type stuff and, and being able to work from home completely transformed that. They had far more leisure time because they could fit in little domestic type things during the week. That, that, that came out very strongly from a number of people. I spoke to a lady who was a really keen a runner, very into going running in the morning, but, but lived in a part of London where she just didn't feel safe doing that in the dark. And so, of course, the opportunity for her to be able to work from home and actually do a bit of work, then go running in the light, and just things that I'd never, ever thought about. And, and it made me completely rethink flexibility and, and uh, I think often we think about flexibility as well will it work because our employees won't all be here together I think what we miss in that are all of the individual situations that you can just never really imagine are going on in people's lives it helps to really create a bond between you and the employer and, and of course there are some downsides one guy told me which blew my mind really was I started in lockdown I've never even been to your offices I sit here and all Hitachi Rail is to me is this little, much like we are today, much like this little Teams thing. And so, of course, he's got, and, and he was a guy who worked in IT, gets job offers all the time. And, and of course, where, where's the glue for him? Because there's no glue of a corporate culture there particularly. And if he changes employers, he just swaps one little window for another window with some different people. And, and that got me thinking about the long-term effects of retention on employees where you're not able to create the same kind of nitism, I suppose, or the same degree of retention to you as an employer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think with that in mind, I'd be really keen to understand off the back of that study, what you've done to implement any of those initiatives within Hitachi Rail. Yeah, of course. But I, I, actually, I don't think we've done anything particularly different to other employers or anything particularly radical. We've settled on 
a pattern which really works well for us where people are coming into the office two or three days a week and then at home for the other part of the week and, and that you know we've been through different cycles of making that work and I think the key takeaway from you know if you were to make a link between the research talked about earlier and this was that one size doesn't fit all and I think in the early days we were probably too concerned with being prescriptive about the rules so you know it must be this day and it must be this day and you shouldn't come in on this day and, and we learned quite quickly, I think, that you have to just trust people and let them build their work around their lives. That was a really good learning for us. There's the built environment, and we're kind of still on a bit of a journey of that. We've we've long, or we've been considering, is our is our work environment still conducive to the way in which we use it? By which I mean, there's a tendency still for people to come into the de- come into the office and sit in rows of desks on Teams calls and that seems a bit silly really and to my mind I'm advocating I think for more of a a much more social work type environment as well I I think the perfect model is where people are able to balance uh, staying at home on the days they have Teams calls but coming into the office when they don't have so much in their calendar and they're able to just get that we talked about it before that more collaborative feel my, my colleague in the US has this phrase of purposeful presenteeism or being present in a purposeful way. And I think that's a really interesting thing about making sure that you're going into the office because it makes sense to be in the office and to do whatever you need to do in that environment on that day, not just because your employer has said you have to do it for two days. I think we need to allow employees to make that decision for themselves. Fantastic. I think listening to everything that you've just said there around empowerment, choice and trust, it speaks to me of a sense of psychological safety. So I wondered whether this is something that you're actively trying to drive within the organisation, particularly given that we now know the effect that it can have on performance. Yeah, we certainly invested in making sure that we had training and materials to help managers with managing in a more virtual way and the way that that changes relationships and certainly we dialed up a lot of our well-being and tried to help managers and, and employees understand that it's a very different environment and you know for a lot of people perhaps if you live alone work is your social thing and, and actually how difficult it can be for some people to be at home on their own all day as well so it's it's which goes back to the one size fits all thing and it's not great for everybody it doesn't you know not everybody wants to work at home five days a week some do some don't and I think that psychological safety thing goes back to allowing people to be more self-determining in what works for them. And where does authenticity fit within this? Because you've talked about that individualised approach, which obviously allows people to be more wholesome and open. Is this something, again, that is an active focus for you to drive that authentic culture? The authenticity is, uh, I I believe it comes from sort of storytelling and, and senior people being very open in terms of talking about their own lives and sharing you know, this this works for me. I've got two older children away at university. And so my situation is very different to somebody with two young children or somebody with no children as well. And I think the authenticity comes from talking very openly about your own situation. 
which, which hopefully uh, demonstrates to your employees that it, that it's fine to configure it however you want. And, and I think then perhaps it comes across more authenticity. Okay. You talked about the business values at the beginning of our conversation. Could we talk about your personal values and principles now? So what is it that you really hold yourself to to standard on? I guess the goal is to make sure that the values that you have are aligned with the values of your organisation as well. So we touched on harmony as well. And for me, you know, we all spend a lot of time at work. And so having good relationships at work is very important for me. One of our other values is around integrity, and that's a thing again that's particularly important to me. I think my other, in, in terms of my other values, are, are kind of around respect for employees as well. I think we're in a, a very, a very different world now in terms of the labour market, and I think we have to. People have talked about the water for talent for years, but uh, it, it's very acute now and we have to be very aware that our employees have lots of choices and lots of offers. It's very easy for them to move roles these days as well. So that kind of respect and a more kind of open dialogue with people in terms of how, how to make work work better for them, I think is really important. Brilliant. And Thinking about your career, you've done a number of big jobs now. I'm wondering what the cost of that has been. So, yes, it comes with a lot of benefits and, and uh, to a degree status if you want to go down that angle. But what's the actual cost or the sacrifices that you've had to make been? Well, I think I've been relatively fortunate in that I've always had my own boundaries. So and I guess I've been lucky enough to work for bosses and companies that respected those boundaries and I think I, I think sometimes I try to talk to employees who don't get those boundaries right that you, that you have a choice the company will just keep taking and taking and taking however much you give it and the company will never say oh no you should stop working so hard now maybe, maybe you're maybe a good manager or an HR person will but I think you have to put those boundaries in for yourself and yeah, you, you have to use your common sense. And, and if you're wiped out one day at five o'clock, you stop at five o'clock. So I wouldn't say, I, I think for me personally, there have been more upsides than downsides to my career so far. And I've been very lucky in terms of not having to, or having a very supportive network as well that, that, that has meant I haven't had to make great sacrifices. Really interested to understand what you do to protect and optimise your physical, mental, spiritual, et cetera, well-being? Well, me, me personally, I love physical exercise. So I love my dog walks in the morning, but I also run and cycle and play squash. So I do that. That, that I find really amazing. I find particularly, I know you're a runner as well, and I don't know whether you experience the same thing, but there's something magical about running, about how you can have a problem and you go for a run. And even though you're not necessarily thinking about that problem, some, somehow when you when you've finished your run you know the answer and I've never been able to understand how that happens but that's really good and then beyond that I think I said to you about being curious I, I found podcasts a few years ago as well so I love a good podcast and uh, listen to lots of them. That's fantastic to hear and I think just to your point on the running I've always described to people that running and cycling is a form of active meditation because similar to yeah. what you've said 
I tend to find that I am able to problem solve and think creatively when I'm out and about, you know, in the countryside with the fresh air on the go, with your breathing becoming regulated. It just gives clarity of mind. So great, great to hear that you're having similar experiences. What about the team then? So what do you do to look after your people from that perspective or help them look after themselves? It starts with letting them self-determine what works for them. I think, you you know, I touched on this earlier, but you have to recognise they're all in completely different situations some of them have families some of them don't some of them are older some of them are younger and you, you have to allow people to and trust people to be able to manage their own time in a way that protects them you have to know which of the people you need to say enough stop go away you know you've, you've done enough please take some time out and you know, there are those people in every team and even if they don't necessarily respond to you saying, please turn your laptop off and stop working on a Friday or whatever. I think even if they don't do it, I think they value the fact that someone says it's okay to do that. So I think treat them as individuals. Obviously, you have to respect their their boundaries as well. And, and I think listening to people as well, I think, has become far more of a thing I've noticed over the last couple of years that people want to just vent sometimes if you hire people who are very capable and can do the role without much you know they don't need much technical or input then actually often it's about kind of shared a shared moan a bit of venting I think is quite often uh, what people need. There's been a lot of talk and opinion about what schools should be teaching students, i.e. the next generation of the workforce recently. I'm really interested to understand what your view is on this. What are the subjects that you think schools should be teaching people to help prepare them for the real world and world of work? I have been a school governor and I've been the trustee of an academy trust for a long time and I think, obviously, I'm not an expert in the curriculum, so I wouldn't be so bold as to know what what I would change. But the thing I think is missing is a conversation between employers and educationalists about what we see are the gaps when we hire people into early careers programmes and feed that back into, into education. So, of course, simple things like being able to use the you know Microsoft Office suite or whatever. These days, it would seem logical that you would be teaching people about using video conferencing and how VCs work. The other, a real thing I feel quite strongly is about, about, and I'm not saying that schools don't teach this, is about personal finance as well. I'm always quite surprised at how... I wouldn't, I don't think my children would thank me for this, but not, I wouldn't say financially illiterate, but I'm surprised that at the age of 18, you have to go through the differences between a credit card and a debit card and what a mortgage really is and what interest rates really mean. I think there's, perhaps that was just the school that mine went to, but I'm always surprised that that isn't a broader part of the curriculum. And I know Martin Lewis, I think, talks about that a lot. I completely agree with him. I think that would be a really good way for a good addition to the curriculum. And and I think employers would be really comfortable with with helping schools with this. Some of these things as well, I think, as an employer, we're always very keen on links with education. We do a lot of work around STEM through primary engineer. But, but actually us and I'm sure other employers as well would be very happy to help support schools with a whole variety of expertise on different topics. 
I agree with everything you've said there. And I actually think there's potentially another angle to it as well, which is more of a long-term talent pipelining one, particularly because of the talent shortages that we're experiencing in the market at the moment. I think it's really important to to help nurture and, and generate that next generation and give them focus and insight into the opportunities that are available. That's got me thinking about your career. And would you be able to share with us the greatest lesson that you've learned throughout the duration of your career to date? Probably have two things that really spring to mind when you say that. What One's around diversity and then the other is the learning I talked earlier about with regards to COVID. And I was lucky enough to spend about a year living and working in Hong Kong. And to this day, I very much remember during the first week going to a meeting and being the only white Western person in a room and how uncomfortable it was and how self-conscious I felt and how different I felt. And, and so from a, you know, when you, when you think about diversity, it's very easy and to talk about, but until you have some real lived experience, I think often now when I'm, I'm far more conscious that when, when you're sat in the room and there's somebody from a different ethnicity or there's a single person, single female in a room, it, it, it's, there's nothing like having been there yourself to make you conscious of it and, and to be quite mindful about it. So that was a really interesting lesson for me. I think the other thing, as I touched on, was through the COVID period and the journey that we went on from this cookie cutter approach that we started with through to treating people as individuals. And I think that for me, thinking about policy making and decision making and not assuming that everybody is like you or that everybody is the same has been a real key lesson. What would you say your ultimate life goal is? Ultimate life goal is to certainly I talked before about having been a trustee for a multi-academy trust. I've recently been appointed to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. So I wouldn't say a life goal, but I certainly love the idea of being able to take, take what you've learned in the world of work and see whether that's of some value to society. So that's really important to me, being a good sort of a, a good citizen. In terms of life goals, I, I think, you know, I've been really lucky. It's afforded us lots of privileges, been able to travel. So I wouldn't say I've figured out exactly what my life goal is. I, it, it's to continue learning, which I know sounds a bit trite, but I'm a very curious person. I'm fascinated currently by artificial intelligence and this chat GPT thing. Naturally very nosy, I think is the thing. And to finish off today, what would you want to be remembered by when it's all said and done? So in, in career terms, I think my kind of mission has been to try to change some of the stereotype images of HR people. And I think that probably sounds a bit weird, but I would think I'd feel really happy or I've felt really happy when people say, oh, it's quite normal for an HR person. I think that's probably about the greatest accolade you could get as an HR person. I think just being a reasonable, pragmatic person, I think, is really important to me. So, Jonathan, we're on to our quick fire round. I wondered if you could start by telling us about something that you've achieved that you're proud of. It would certainly be my first year at Hitachi Rail. I joined in March of 2020 and I went to the office on my first day. 
thought, wow, this is lovely, how great everyone is. And then within the space of 48 hours, someone had tested positive and I pretty much didn't go back to the office for a whole year. And effectively, my first year was me and my general manager trying to navigate all of the problems that everybody else with coped through COVID. And I think just kind of living through that period feels like a pretty big achievement in hindsight. Wow. Yeah. How did you react to your greatest failure? I once got down to the final two for the job, one of the jobs of my dreams, and I messed it up by not thinking through what the organisation was looking for, because I was so focused on telling them what I was good at. And that lesson has stayed with me, actually. What's something that you regret and what would you have done differently with hindsight? Not so much a, a regret, but I really, I absolutely loved my time in, in Hong Kong. And I guess not a regret, but, but there's been several opportunities along the way to live and work abroad. But of course, the timing hasn't always been quite right. And of course, you know, with, you know, with family, it's, it's always quite difficult. So not, not a regret, but I certainly want to, you know, still that desire to live and work abroad is, is with me. What's the biggest challenge your business is facing right now? But for the rail industry, it's a pretty bumpy time at the moment. Of course, the rail industry has, to an extent, recovered passenger numbers, but still has some way to go. But of course, is now having some difficult times from an industrial relations perspective. So I think for us as a business, it's restoring restoring consumer confidence in the railways which which, which could be fantastic it's you know in, a, in an era of environmentally friendly travel train huge, hugely has a place and we need to win back in, uh, customer confidence in it what do you like most about yourself I, i'm able to get on with people quite easily i'm able to i find that i build quite good relationships with all sorts of different people and i quite i quite take some pride in that what's your biggest area of development then Probably it's the same thing, actually. I can be a bit too agreeable. I can sometimes, again, not, not be too nice, but I can be too accepting of other people's points of view sometimes. I've learned, learned to, I mean, these are, we're all on, on the scale somewhere, aren't I? And aren't we? And I've, you know, learned to pick my battles, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I can have a tendency to be too agreeable sometimes. Could you tell us about something that you're passionate about? A thing that I would feel pretty passionate about would be this, we talked about it before, about this engagement between employers and educational institutions. And I've been involved, as I said, with Academy Trusts. I've also had some involvement in the past with university technical colleges as well. And, and I do strongly believe that employers and educational establishments, whether it be universities, FE colleges, apprenticeship schemes, need to have a, have a way of, of joining together much more clearly than they do at the moment. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I have a, a really good boss that I worked with years and years ago, and he had this phrase, get in the water. And what he meant was stop thinking about it, don't overthink it, don't procrastinate, just get on with it. And I think that's very true sometimes. I think planning's really important, but sometimes you just have to get in into it and then you deal with the problems as they come along. I think that's a really good bit of advice. Isn't it just finally? What's one book or podcast that you could recommend for our audience? I listen to a lot of podcasts. The, I guess there's one I really love called Intelligence Squared. 
which is really, really varied. Superb. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to hear your story, some fantastic insights, and we really appreciate your time. Thanks, Doris. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember to like, share and subscribe. Thanks.